from New York City. This is Film Spotting, streaming video units. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I am Matt Singer. And on this episode of SVU, Allison and I venture into the smeary, neon lip depths of the Queen's Night to talk about Good Time, the Safdie Brothers thriller starring Robert Pattinson as a bank robber on the run, now streaming on Amazon. And while I was interested in the idea of spending the second half of our episode looking at some of Pattinson's other post-Twilight film choices, uh, you know, which have often been interesting and ambitious, I just couldn't risk Matt with his hardcore Team Jacob fandom derailing yet another episode with his opinions on this matter. Matt, how many recordings will we have to discard because they turn into hours-long rants about why Jacob Black would be a better supernatural husband and father? too many at least one more <laughs> at least one more no i have learned my lesson and that is why we're running instead with a twitter suggestion from taylor s cole one of our listeners who thought it might be fun to discuss movies that like good time take place almost or entirely in one night so look forward to that later in the episode first let's talk good time i gotta come clean with you about something what so i told you about my brother yeah I told you about the program he's forced to attend and how he shouldn't be there. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Do you understand that? No. Something happened. I don't know exactly what. My brother's been arrested. He's being held at Rikers Island. He could get killed in there. Sorry, I just have a client that walked in. We're good? When you get another 10 grand, your brother will get out. So here's how it works here at Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. Uh, at the end of every episode, we let you tell us which film or occasionally TV series we should review in the next episode. Uh, and we let you vote on one of three options. Last time it was a tough one uh, with three movies from 2017 that were all critically acclaimed and arguably underseen. The Safety Brothers thriller Good Time on Amazon. The Steven Soderbergh NASCAR heist movie, uh, Logan Lucky, and uh, that was also on Amazon, and Stephen Cohn's two-generation drama, Princess Sid, on Netflix. And while Princess Sid put on a surprisingly strong showing, uh, if you haven't seen it yet, by the way, it's really worth a look. Uh, Good Time won out. Good Time is the fourth scripted feature from brothers Benny and Josh Safdie who actually grew up in Forest Hills in Queens, not far from where a lot of good time takes place. It's their first film to be centered on a performance by a name actor, though there are times when Robert Pattinson, playing Connie Nikas, looks almost unrecognizable, especially after his character gives himself an impulsive and extremely unflattering bleach job in hopes of disguising himself. Uh, Connie has a brother, Nick, played by Benny Safdie, one of the directors, who has an unspecified developmental disability, and the two have a relationship that feels a little like a city dweller's riff on Of Mice and Men. Connie's the fast talker, the guy who we find out kind of thinks he's so smart that he has contempt for everyone except his brother, who he seems to genuinely love, but also manipulates. And while he's uh, sold his brother on this promise that they're going to rob a bank so they can run away together, the robbery, as we see in the sequence before the opening credits, goes wrong. Uh, a die pack explodes. And Nick, 
who is basically only there for moral support anyway, ends up getting arrested. And from there, the movie is this one long woozy sprint into the night as Nick tries to evade a manhunt uh, while coming up with this wild plan to get his brother out of jail and run away with him, uh, making his way from one desperate situation to another. Uh, Matt, the we only get this gesture towards the title of the movie at the very end. Uh, but that title does, in some ways, pose a question I think that is pertinent to the film, which is that it's all about generating excitement and tension from watching someone who's always on the verge of getting caught. Uh, but it also involves watching him basically wreck the lives of everyone he encounters. Uh, you do not want Connie Nikas to turn up at your door. So would you call this movie a good time? Uh, yeah, I think it's a reasonably good time. I, I like this movie. I didn't love it. And I will say I, be, just because of my schedule and having the two babies and I, whenever I have a chance to see whatever we're talking about, I take it. And so in this case, I was pretty clear the Robert Pattinson team. What was his team? Team Edward. Was that him? Team Edward. So team Edward came out really strong for good time on, on the poll. Yeah. So it was we very... had some help from uh, Robert Pattinson fandom. Right. So it was very it. clear this was going to win. So last weekend I watched this movie because I had some time last Sunday. So it's been a week since I watched it. And I have to say a lot of it has faded from my memory already. It has Ooh. not left a very strong impression. The things that left impressions were the cinematography, very striking, very interesting. And the, the score is really moody and interesting. And, and it's this, this kind of beautiful electronic score. I mean, other than that, I was engrossed watching it, but I didn't think it was particularly special. I mean, it's a, I think it's a well-made th- a thriller, uh, but it didn't really hit me as much more than that other than you know the Safdie brothers they've made a lot a, a lot of smaller movies with relative unknowns or kind of mumblecore or mumblecore adjacent working with a lot of the same people here as you mentioned you know they've got Robert Pattinson Jennifer Jason Lee is in the movie I who seemingly kind of weirdly miscast I thought I wasn't her character doesn't make a lot of sense in her limited screen time to me uh, and, and I, so I, you know, they've definitely like kind of upped the ante in terms of production value and cast and everything. And I admired that and I thought they did a good job with it. And I'm, I look forward to seeing whatever they do next. I think that they, they proved that they could work at a bigger scale with bigger cast, but it didn't do that much more for me than that. But a good time. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's more like a squirmy time because you're con- like you said, this, this character is just constantly on the verge of screwing up so totally that he's he's caught. I mean, he's constantly screwing up, but just kind of screwing up one screw up into the next. Um, but you're just one. He's just seemingly one moment away from the big screw up. So you're kind of constantly like, oh, God, he's so, you know, he's kind of stupid, too. Right. And that makes it sort of frustrating. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a bad movie. He's stupid, but he's also smart in this way. He has this weird in the moment cunning, this way of kind of like zooming in on people's vulnerabilities that I think there's something there's this weird, this really interesting tension there between the ways in which he's good at the improvising the story kind of like charming someone 
And then the fact that he makes a lot of incredibly dumb choices. Right. Well, he's like, he's almost like metaphorically nearsighted. He can only see like three feet in front of him and he can see clearly there, but everything beyond that is incredibly blurry and he has no concept of an hour from now. This choice will make me survive, but how it will affect me in an hour, he either can't see it or doesn't bother to, to, to see it. Right. But that's part of what makes that, especially like the bank robbery in the beginning, right? right? Where you're like, it seems it's shocking that he gets away at all mm-hmm. because he doesn't seem to have actually thought out very much. They take a car service, which, you know, with their getaway car <laughs> is like a livery car that they've called and that, you know, right. instead of having it ready to go and he's getting angry being like, right. why aren't you waiting here? Like, uh, it's just so funny. And they could have seemingly gotten away with it, it seems like it, because at first the woman just gives over a bunch of money and then, but they right. arbitrarily demand more. Right. So, so she, she has to back. leave, go like back to the back room, the safe, whatever it is, where you're just like, okay, now you're inviting her to call yes. the cops or hit the alarm. Like, once she's out of your sight... I mean, again, and that's just like, that's stupid. Yes. So it's like snatching defeat from the jaws of victory is something he does over and over and over again. Right. I think it's a better movie than you did, Mm -hmm. I think. Like, I saw it for the first time back when it was in theaters last year, and I was actually surprised by how much I remember of it. I think because, I mean, it is is a B-movie, basically, kind of like uh, overtly so. It's just about, yeah, this like... Uh, a trip into the the night and like being on the run but i think that there is something about pattinson's performance and this kind of the snakiness of it you know the ways in which uh he he there's something very like mesmerizing about it and like i think when the movie really had me is the scene in which he has persuaded his way into the house of these strangers that he has met. Right. Uh, uh, on, <laughs> it's even hard to like describe. Like the so many things have happened. Like the on hospital. the, in the bus that like yeah, drives people from, from, the from the hospital. Yeah. He has like managed to, uh, convince someone that he needs to stay in their house for a little bit. And so he's sitting around with a 16 year old girl who, uh, he can like, he just like looks at her life and like clearly like susses out. She's unsupervised and bored and hates her grandmother. And like he can use that. But, uh, to distract her from something that's on the TV, he kisses her. He knows that she's 16 and all of, and you're just like watching that. I like was watching with my hands over my Absolutely. eyes just because yeah. you're like, Oh no. <laughs> like, what is he going to do? I bet what your team Jacob now? Yeah, what horrible things will he do next? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there is something about the suspense of that where you, you're not invested in him getting away in that like he doesn't seem like anyone who really deserves if he does to get away or uh you know or or seems even like likely to get away as you point out he makes a lot of bad decisions oh yeah um but that the just that suspense that comes from being like how bad is it going to get before he gets caught Mm. if he gets caught um and i think that there is something to that that i found really the ways in which you're you the movie kind of keeps you in the moment with this character you know if he can't ever like look further ahead than the next hour like the movie really kind of demands that you are there with him right as he kind of tries to think his way out and uh, i will say the the cinematography you know as as sort of stylish as it is it does sort of un, it un- underlines exactly what you're talking about it's a lot of very very close close-ups um, it's Sean Price Williams, yes, say, uh, a former who's... coworker of mine. Yes, at Kim's video, yes. but also I... like 
kind of king of uh, a certain type of mumblecore movie. This level, especially of New York, he makes a lot of like indie and New York. Uh, Alex movies. Ross works with Alex Ross Perry a yes, lot, who yeah. I also worked with at Kim's video. Yes, there you go. Yes. Uh, but I think like he has a very distinctive look to his cinematography, mm-hmm. and it looks like this. Yeah. Well, I, but this is and this is I thought was some of his best work. I have to say. Yeah. Um, and you know, color. It's so colorful. Um, and, and it's all at night. All and at it night. Looks so very interesting yeah. to look at. The you know he, they do a nice job of making this not look like every other New York movie. It's still very much New York. It feels like New York, but it doesn't look like every other New York movie. And all of those tight close-ups, like what you're saying about how we are trapped with this character. And I mean, it almost like it as you're talking about it. I'm like the way it's shot. It is our vision of the movie. What we can see is exactly how Connie sees the world. He does. He doesn't even like I was saying. He's he's nearsighted. He doesn't see ten feet in front of him. The movie is like that. We can't see the background. We can't see his. So many of the shots are just his face in tight, tight close up, watching his the little hamster. And in his case, it's a real little hamster <laughs> on like, the yeah, wheel. His, like, greasy face. Yeah, the, like flop of hair. But he's still also Robert Pattinson, and yes. so. The, he's like prettiness. He's very aware of the fact that it is a useful tool. Yes. Yeah. So I think that it, it's not just pretty for pretty's sake. I think it absolutely it's like very clearly designed to speak to the themes and the ideas in the movie. And I appreciate that. And then the whole the fact that it's so colorful and beautiful like that at first, again, just seems like a choice. But the more the movie goes on, there's this whole subplot involving LSD. And so it kind of adds to the sort of trippy there's a trippy, involving lysergic a, yes, mood of uh, the film. An amusement park, yes. which I think in a lot of other movies would seem like this kind of ridiculous climax. But in this movie, it goes it goes from the amusement park to this like brutalist uh, apartment structure out in I think that's in Brooklyn at that point. But like it it uses these really striking um, striking settings, but it finds them in a way that feels. I mean, as organic as anything he does, which right. is like all of these spur of the moment. By that point, he's so far off chasing. <laughs> like, like the thing that he is trying to chase at that point is like such a long shot. It's right. amazing. Right. And I sort of enjoy that about the movie, too, is that it, you know, it's a unconventional, conventional movie. I, you know, you, you know, you, you were, it almost, you could say, we've seen so many like sort of like, oh, I'm making a horror movie, but it's elevated. It's an elevated. I mean, in some ways, that's what this is, too. I mean, it, it is a very sort of, uh, basic idea of a guy trying to bail his brother out of jail and he has a certain amount of time to do it and needs money. But, the way that he keeps like kind of getting further from his goal instead of closer to it is sort of a fun twist on it. Um, the other thing I wanted to just credit the Safdies with that they're, they're very good at, even though this movie has Robert Pattinson and has, you know, more uh, actual famous professional actors, they're very good at finding sort of non-professional actors and getting very good performances out of them. And there's this guy, I'm assuming he's not a professional actor. He just, he oozes that to me. Maybe he is. I don't know. But the guy who, Which one? Uh, Ray, the guy who plays. Yeah. So basically there's, uh, there, uh, without spoiling too much, there's this guy who winds up with Nick, uh, with Connie, excuse me, on his quest, who's another sort of low life criminal guy. And he, he is just phenomenal, I thought. I thought he was the best performance in the movie. He just has this real gritty, authentic New York, uh, dirt bag quality to him that you can't really fake. And I thought he was great. And, uh, the actor's name is Buddy Duress, which yeah. is a fabulous name too, by the way. He, he was in, uh, Heaven Knows What, which, which is was the their Safdie's previous last film. Movie. And one that I like a lot. I think is actually a That's stronger a film than, than this one. Yeah, and a more ambitious one. Totally. But it has that same thing of being like, 
like always in the moment, like mm-hmm. in, in this way. In that case, that film was about uh, drug addicted, like homeless community, in yeah. particular, this one w- young woman. But it's so much about just like you're always in the present with her. Right. Like her life is just like looking for an next fix, looking for fun, looking for this, the, the guy she's in love with. And it never seems to, it never lets you outside of that experience. Mm-hmm. And I, and I did appreciate the way in which they applied that same filmmaking sensibility to in that, like then being on the run. Right. Um, I, yeah. I just think that they have a real knack for casting people who are authentic and real, but they're, but they give good performances, you know, like they don't, they, you know, there's a, there's another side of it where you can cast someone who's not an actor and they're not that good. I mean, there's so many examples right. of that. People can fall really flat. Yes. I will say this about Buddy Duress, and I knew this. Uh, yes. but it's funny to me that you called him out. Uh, he, his first movie was Heaven Knows What, and when it premiered, he was in Rikers. Uh, well, he had, yeah. Um, there you go. For drug-related offenses. Uh, well, he brings that to this film, let's He does. Say. I know. He, I think, is particularly great. Yeah. I, you know, I think that... There is a potential uneasiness to the idea of uh, even even if they grew up in the area. I think like given where we're at right now in the conversations about film, there's this potential uneasiness to the idea of uh, playing tourists in like kind of underclass neighborhoods and communities right. here. And I know that there have been some people who have called this movie out for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll say watching it, it's not something that really jumped out at me because it just felt really real you know like talia webster who plays crystal the teenage girl i'm just like i believe that entirely that performance and i believe her just like the shorthand of her world you know which is not it's not it feels so specific that i'm like i want like it like it feels like details that have been lifted from someone's house that they have gone to yeah you know yeah Uh, even like even nikki and uh, his grandmother and the fact that his grandmother is like, you know, a Greek immigrant, clearly, mm-hmm. and that uh, they're like two generations removed. And just like all of the little bits of specificity to all of these characters and to the idea of what something like Rigo Park, which is where uh, the house is that they end- he ends up staying in for a while. Uh, you know, I just you don't see a lot of that on screen very much mm-hmm. and i it does feel very lived in to me what did you think about ben safty one of the two directors yes. his performance as nikki uh the sort of mentally developmentally, developmentally disabled, disabled yeah. brother i mean I don't know. I feel like we're rapidly coming to the point in movie and television making in which that any any tolerance for a non-disabled actor playing someone with a disability it's going away. Yes. And so I mean beyond, yes, there's always like that unease there. But I mean, I don't know, it's not like doing a Sean Penn in I am Sam or something. I felt like as far as a performance go when it was like a pretty quiet one. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's not in most of the movie, too, right. which I think is is helpful. I mean, he plays a character who is basically just kind of, like, non-expressive, right? Yeah, but... Non-expressive has, and, like, a little... It seems like he might have a hearing aid, too. Mm-hmm. He has a hearing aid, he and so he has aid. sort of a speech impediment as well. Yeah. I don't know. I, I did have a few moments where I heard Robert Downey from Tropic Thunder kind of talking uh, see, to me a little bit. See, it didn't feel that bad to me, but uh, I guess... Oh, I, I, yeah. It was on the verge. It was approaching it, and I was... I felt like... It was on my mind. Would you feel more comfortable or less comfortable if there was an actor with a des- developmental disability in it, and then you watch the scene with the violence? I would probably feel... That's a good question, but I think I would feel... 
uh, I feel better about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You might have to shoot them differently, but yeah. But I think I think I would feel better. Yeah. I understand that. It's certainly I think like it's it's uh a worthy uh a worthy question there. Yeah. And I, I mentioned Jennifer Jason Lee before we wrap up okay. here. What was wh- I mean, I love Jennifer Jason Lee. Yes. She she's in Annihilation right now. She's yes. so great in that. I yes. and but what was she doing in this movie in that part? It seemed so oddly cast. I, I I don't know. It didn't bother me nearly as much as I think it's bothered you. I do feel like there's some, the problem with it is that especially in a movie that is still so much uh, so many like first time actors yeah. that she comes around and you're like, oh, it's Jennifer Jason Lee. <laughs> like his girlfriend is Jennifer Jason Lee. But I did feel like she spoke to I a kind of character that I believed, which is also that. Uh, I mean, she seems like this kind of someone with uh, her own kind of like whatever, whatever it is unspecified. Like she's a little childish. She's impulsive. She lives with her mother. Well, yeah, that's all right? the stuff that I found. So you like, found that implausible. Well, just it just seemed odd. I just I, I don't know. I, it's like a character that it, it felt like it was written for a, a, a younger actress. And it just seemed to yeah. me like I, I needed some I needed more, I guess. I wanted I felt- to sort of I, I wanted to wrap my head around who this person is, this you know, she's like 25 years older than Robert Pattinson yeah, no, and I she's living was, at home. And you're right. She has like, all so, supposed to be a point like that. He, I guess, but I just, I needed, I wanted more. I yeah. guess it just the way as much, there's not that much of her in it. And it was like, I don't know. It wasn't the good kind of like tantalizing, leave you wanting more. It was more like, I need to understand this character better. Yeah. I just felt like she was someone, I, in some ways, the fact that she was, uh, quite a bit older than he was just, I think was a handy shorthand, a visual shorthand. When you see that, that is his girlfriend and that and then he immediately starts kind of like pushing at her for money mm-hmm. and also her mother is like he can't come in what is he doing here i think you understand that relationship really quickly mm. you know and like i think it just uh, i don't know it underlines how much how many relationships in his life are these calculated calculated to be you know transactional like what he can get out of people mm. uh i don't know. He, he he the character for whatever for all of his dumb decisions does seem to have this ability to hone in on vulnerability uh and i uh, that was something that i do i do think is it's still interesting and still relatively uh that does does set it aside it does make me remember it mm-hmm. like uh the fact that the way he turns up the politeness when he has to, the way he like shamelessly leverages his brother's disability when he has to, the way he starts saying, God bless you, God bless you at a certain <laughs> point, just because he thinks that's what someone's want, gonna want to hear. Right. The fact, like any reference of, of He's a religion. Yeah. yeah. Or even that weird little story he, he talks, he tells in the hospital about being with his dad who's dying and yeah. the television changing channels. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of coughs up this story that like, is a compelling it's so weird that it is disarming Mm. and i think that uh there is something mesmerizing about that that uh i don't know that it elevates the film i I think the film's aims are pretty straightforward but it does i think give it a little bit more heft to me yeah i think it's a successful film i think it's well made i I think the safety brothers are good directors didn't blow me away but i mean i seem like the kind of person who would make a good time joke right here, but I'm not going to. <laughs> All right. I'm well, going to resist. Uh, make your own then. Yeah. Uh, good time. You can watch it on Amazon. So for Q Shots, 
Uh, we're going to talk about movies, which something we didn't talk a ton about in the review of Good Time is the fact that it is set over one night. It's all taking yeah. place over this one long, crazy night. And so we're going to talk about other movies that are set all over the course of one night. Um, and Allison, you wanted to mention a few titles that we're not going to talk about, we're not using as our recommendations, mostly because either they're very famous or we've talked about them on the show before or both. Yeah. But before before we get into that, I do want to say also... It is. I, we didn't talk about it a lot, but it is definitely the one of the essential parts of Good Time, yeah. which is that it just gives you that feeling of also staying up all night and just like the part at the end where it becomes dawn, mm-hmm. you know, and it just really is overwhelmingly that feeling of being like Ugh. exhaustion. Yes, and, yes, and, and, and like the, and one of the characters at that point is really drunk and like yeah, and the colorful cinematography and the sort of dreamlike nature of it. I mean, I think that also goes along nicely with the one night theme because it has this sort of nightmarish quality. The longer it goes, this odyssey into this, these weird parts of New York, you do you, you, the, the imagery kind of matches that feeling of having this weird dreamlike journey into the underworld or something like that. So yeah, it's a, it's an important part of the movie that we didn't talk that much about. Cause we talked about other things yeah. that we wanted to talk about. But I think that, uh, you know, when you, when you think about movies that do this, uh, Absolutely have to give a shout out to After Hours, yes. which is maybe my favorite of this genre. Probably uh, uh, somewhat of an influence on Good I, Time, yes, you I think? Maybe a little? Uh, definitely. Maybe a smidge. Uh, maybe a smidge. Yeah. Um, and also has one of the best endings of all time, mm-hmm. I think, uh, which I will not spoil. But if you haven't seen After Hours, I think... He was dead the whole time. I spoiled it. Uh, it ends with like a scene that is... A perfect kind of metaphor for that feeling of staying up all night yeah. and then trying to start your next day as if you slept. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but also a shout out to Go, uh, yep. the great 90s film that I think, uh, one that I love that never seems to really... It's fallen it's out fun. of uh, out of favor I, or just, just kind of obscure. It's gone into obscurity. Yeah, it's it not really be. famous. It, it, I think it just came out at the wrong time to become like an internet cult favorite. Right. Even though it kind of should be. Yeah. I mean, it came out when we were in college and yes. it was a very popular movie briefly. Yes. During that period, it was like, that was a hip movie. And it kind of, it, it was the best of the movies that tried to be about raves. Yes, for sure. There were some very there bad, were some ones. bad ones. Yes. Yeah, that was a good movie. Yeah, maybe I'm just th- talking now out of. I mean, it's Doug Liman, right? Yeah, and it's right after Swingers. I wonder if it's because his career went in such a different direction where he just started making blockbusters. Some of them very good, but he kind of got away from making art movies, indie movies, yeah. personal movies. I wonder if that's part of it. If he had kept, if he had stayed the course, and Go seemed like a step towards some great work of art. Maybe we would look at it more fondly or talk about it more. The way it is, it's just kind of like it was his stepping stone to making Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which is a very different thing. Right. But definitely also worth a look. Dazed and Confused, obviously. We've spoken about it before. The Warriors. Yes. Uh, Another, I think, another influence on on Good Time, for sure. Um, Before Sunrise, uh, which I think has influenced certainly at least one of the movies that I'm going to talk about, or or Mm -hmm. was, uh, or not influenced, but like falls into the same category. It actually came after the movie I'm going to talk about. I mean, I guess it doesn't all take place all at night, but Before Sunset Mm -hmm. also has a lot of, it means, you know, they they all have tight time frames, but um, I mean... Link later. Big fan of the of the one night, uh, one yeah, day, one the, night. Uh, also of the like the fond feeling of talking all night. The, yes. you know that. Yes. Mostly, mostly for college students, not entirely, but not entirely, or or people <laughs> or, in relationships, yes, or people in relationships. Uh, but that like heady feeling of being like 
this right. conversation is going so well. Yeah, I don't want to sleep. I don't want to sleep. Yep. Uh, and also wanted to give a shout out, not a recommendation, but the fact it does exist. Uh, Mixology, the short-lived ABC sitcom, which you can rent, attempted to do a full season entirely one night at a bar. So the whole, like, not each episode was one night. The whole no, season. The whole season. Was one night. Was one night. I mean, that sounds terrible. It was terrible. <laughs> but, so don't watch yes, it. But you can. If you were curious. You want to sample it. Yes. You can rent it. It's uh, It was uh, on ABC. I don't think anyone's streaming it right now, but you can Can't buy an episode. Why. Yeah. Uh, so many really uh, great movies in there from all over the place. Yes. Um, but let me jump into then my first one, which okay. I would say also, it feels a bit like it's it's an influence on Good Time. Uh, and it is Mikey and Nikki, mm. uh, which is currently streaming for free with ads on Tubi TV, which has a deal with Criterion now. But it's also on Filmstruck if you want a non-ad version and have a Filmstruck um, subscription. Uh, directed by Elaine May. Elaine May, you know, a comedy legend. One of the things that's so compelling about this film, uh, which is her 1976 film, the third of the four narrative films she directed, is that it kind of has the shape of a comedy without ever being very funny. Uh, it's about these two low-level Philly mobsters uh, who, over the course of one desperate night, uh, one of them becomes convinced that there's a hit out on him because he stole money from his boss. Uh, that would be Nicky, played by John Cassavetes, who, as you slowly learn, he's the one who's always in trouble. He is the one who just kind of can't help pushing things too far. Uh, whereas Mikey, played by Peter Falk, is his childhood and seemingly only friend. The one that he always calls on when things go bad. Sometimes that's the only time he calls him. Uh, and in that way, that can sometimes happen with friendships that have spanned like that much time. They seem to hate each other as much as they like each other. But they're just bound together by all of this shared history. Uh, in making this film, May famously, infamously shot 1.4 million feet of film. Um, Which is a lot. It's a huge amount. It's more than uh, Gone with the Wind. That's a comparison they always make. Uh, <laughs> she just let the cameras roll to catch a lot of these improvisational uh, exercises, mm -hmm. which uh, is a really expensive thing to do when you're shooting on film, uh, and which may not have spelled great things in terms of her relationship with the studio, who like took it away from her and cut their own version that uh, she kind of remedied eventually. But it does lead to something really electric in this movie. Uh, this movie just feels like it, it creates that kind of woozy feeling of staying out all night like so well. Uh, and it just outlines the relationship between these two men so incredibly. Uh, Mikey is, uh, you know, tender sometimes with his, like, this charismatic, messy friend. But he's also so envious and resentful of being the one who kind of, like, burns less bright, is less likable, is less charming. Uh, and Nikki is charming, but he's also manipulative and he's cruel and he just kind of loves pushing people until they're ready to punch him in the face. And they just bounce from late night location to late night location, from a bar to the bus to a cemetery to the houses of the women in their lives. These women who usually seem like they'd be better off not opening the door. <laughs> um, and we know early on that there's a guy who's, who has, in fact, been sent to kill Nikki. Uh, he's played by Ned Beatty. Uh, and Mikey is feeding him info that he has betrayed his best friend. But that doesn't mean that you know what's going to happen. And I feel like so much of this movie is about 
the tension between whether, uh, you know, Mikey will keep setting his friend up and keep kind of like positioning his friend to get shot, to get killed, or whether he will kind of like help him get away. And, uh, you know, I think that like of, of all of the ways to use the, and then they stayed out all night structure, there's something about this that just kind of like, it allows them to, allows you to tease out the kind of sour stomached desperation of these two characters and the exhaustion and just being exhausted of someone, you know, like exhausted by someone knowing them so well and being exhausted by the relationship. It's a really great movie. Uh, and uh, the fact that it's on 2B TV right now is handy. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a film struck, you get to watch it for free mm-hmm. with some irritating ads. Mm. Uh, so now, now is a good time to check it out. Uh, you know, Elaine Mays only made four films and they're all really fascinating films. And this one in particular, uh, it just does something. It feels a bit influenced by John Cassavetes, certainly, and by the types of films he made. But there's also something I think you feel her there so much. So that is Mikey and Nikki, and it is streaming on 2B TV and Filmstruck. And you were saying influence on Good Time, maybe. I mean, we one of the two characters is actually named Nikki. It's yeah. the same exact name. Same. I, I think that might be a little... Uh, a little clue? Little a clue. little clue. Maybe just a little one. My first pick is, um, I would say, one of the other seminal movies of this uh, type of movie, the all Up All Night movie. Uh, came out just a few years before your first pick. It was a, a huge box office hit, one of the most influential films of, uh, of its era for a lot of reasons, including the fact that, um, you know, it's this kind of movie at a time when they were really not popular or not as uh, prevalent as they are today. And, and you know, kind of like Go, actually, I feel like it's also kind of a forgotten movie. Um, it's American Graffiti from 1973, directed by George Lucas, who you may know from a little franchise called Space Wars. <laughs> Excuse me, Star um, Wars. Oh, sounds familiar. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, American Graffiti was Lucas's last film before he made Star Wars, and it was his first hit. Um, before that, he was basically known, if he was known at all, as this like weird, hippy-dippy USC film school grad. He hung around with Francis Ford Coppola a lot. He was kind of his protege. He made these ponderous art films and uh, pseudo-documentaries. Um, and of course he had made THX 1138, this very hard science fiction film. And the funny thing today, if you watch American Graffiti is it seems like this very, um, accessible movie. And yet when he pitched it to people, the idea of it was so foreign at the time, nothing like it existed that people thought it was like an experimental movie. Like it was looked at as another THX 1138 of a different kind. Like every studio turned him down for this idea except for uh, Universal who ag- eventually agreed to make it for $700,000. <laughs> that was all they were willing to put forward, which in today's dollars is like 4 million bucks. So almost nothing. And it wound up making over a hundred million dollars in wow. in theaters. So it was a pretty good investment. Yeah, not bad. Not a bad investment. And the reason that I think it uh, it resonated so much, and I should say, it is about a group of teenagers in 1962 in Modesto, California. Um, I think that it was popular because, in some ways, it taps into the same ideas in Star Wars and the things that make Star Wars popular, just in a less fantastical way. It is a very nostalgic movie. 
um, you know, made in the midst of the 1970s and 1973. This is the height of Watergate. You know, the country is so cynical and it is about this pining for this simpler time of cruising around your hometown, hanging out at the drive-in, listening to rock and roll. And I think it spoke to a lot of baby boomers at just the right time. And the setting is important too because, you know, this is before Happy Days, but it's it looks a lot like Happy Days. Ron Howard is in both of them, but it uh, you know, it's it's not set in the fifties. It's set in nineteen sixty-two. It's like the last gasp of the sixties. It's right before Kennedy is killed. It's right before the Vietnam War escalates. And it's right before all this upheaval, but the characters are they seemingly are like almost aware that the 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 end is nigh. And so it's it's a nostalgic movie that is almost it's nostalgic for nostalgia in a weird way. It is like a feedback loop of nostalgia. And it also has this incredible uh, musical score or soundtrack, I should say, because it's not a score. It's a soundtrack of popular hits, which, again, to these days, it seems like the most obvious, boring thing. And at the time, it was completely unheard of. I mean, it's really one of the very first movies to have a soundtrack of pop music that wasn't recorded for the movie. And it's not like, you know, it's not like an Elvis movie where it's Elvis songs by Elvis. It is just a soundtrack of popular hits. Um, You know, in some ways, that's like the John Williams uh, uh, score for this movie. It's this just very easily recognizable, easily, um, you know, it taps into that vein of sort of like exuberance and excitement. And, you know, the the structure of it being one night, it's like the last night before they all go off to college or the war, whatever it is, you know, and it's like the last night they'll all be together. Again, I think that structure fits with the theme and this idea of this nostalgia, because it's not just that it's, oh, this great night. It's like this sense that it's all ending. And so I think that's why that the movie really resonated with a lot of audiences, not just teenagers. It was, it resonated with older audiences, because once you're older, you sort of love to like look back fondly on that time, but you also have that sense that it's over, it's gone, it's in the past, it's never coming back. And that's something that I think the the up-all-night aspect, it adds the ticking clock. It adds the sense that this is all coming to an end, you know, the that when, the, when this night is over, our youths are over, and perhaps the youth of our nation is over, mm. and all those kind of grand ideas. Uh, obviously, Star Wars is what, uh, you know, completely changed Lucas's career again. Perhaps not for the better, um, but I really love American Graffiti. I think it is one of his very best movies. And the other thing it has that I'll just say briefly is that, again, the the one night thing is it's all set in this place, Modesto, California, which was Lucas's real hometown. He knows this place, and you know the place by the end of the movie. It is just sort of just soaked in the details of what it was like to be here, cruising up and down the main drag of this place, going to the drive-in, listening to music. It just – it feels very lived in, and that's something that I think a lot of up-all-night movies or one-night movies have is that by by their nature, you really get to know the setting, um, which is great. And if you haven't seen it, you know, and I don't think a lot of people these days have. I don't – you know, it's like a famous movie, but I feel like it's a movie a lot of people have just never gotten around to seeing – it's really good, and it is kind of an interesting Rosetta Stone because superficially it's nothing like the Star Wars movies, but you can find all these things that they have in common once you look at it. So that's American Graffiti. It is available right now for rent. So interestingly, my second pick 
takes place in 1963 mm. in that same idea mm. of the same feeling of it being uh, just before the real 60s as yeah. we think of them and the counterculture starts. And in fact, there is even like um, a framing device that's set three years after in which a character, it's all, this film is all set in San Francisco, goes back uh, and then it's San Francisco is in full swing right. uh, and everything has changed. Um, but in this case, this film is, uh, it's sort of like, it starts out like the movie you're talking about and then takes this a whole different term. It's a movie called Dogfight, which is avail- available for rent. Uh, and it is like a movie that begins as one character's, this is our last night together kind of movie. And then kind of takes a veer off into something that feels a bit, a little bit more like a Linklater movie. Uh, this film is, uh, 1991 film. So it's pre, pre the before films directed by Nancy Savoca and stars River Phoenix and Lily Taylor as the two young people who meet, uh, under what are initially really kind of unpleasant circumstances. He's an 18 year old Marine who's about to ship off to Vietnam. She's a waitress in a cafe and she's also an aspiring folk singer. And he initially picks her up because he's looking for a date to bring to a dogfight, which is what these Marines, this game the Marines have decided like to play in which they compete to see who can bring the ugliest woman to a party. That is the, it's a dog fight. Uh, the women are all unaware. They think they've just been taken, uh, picked up for a date. And meanwhile, the Marines are all trying to win a pool of cash. They've all put together and, you know, Phoenix's character charms Taylor's uh, and then starts to realize she's just like a sweet kind of shy young woman and starts to kind of feel bad uh, by the time he's taken her to this party. And by the time uh, she's out dancing on the floor with him and then she figures out what he's up to, gets furious and confronts him and he tries to make it up for her uh, instead of going out with his friends. He hunts her down and asks to take her out to dinner, though he can only actually afford one entree because <laughs> it's actually which is also like one of the things that's very sweet. You know, um, as a proto before sunrise, I think one of the things that I really like about this movie is that it actually, it juxtaposes the really, uh, kind of intimate, increasingly intimate conversations that these two characters are having with the rest of the Marines who are out like, uh, they, at one point, uh, they're out at a, a porn theater getting blowjobs from the sex worker there uh, and getting tattoos. And they are doing this like, woo, like, uh, you know, we're, we're about to ship off to war, kind of smash a bottle on the ground kind of night out. And and Phoenix's character finds himself totally entranced with uh, this young woman and particularly with the vulnerability she coaxes out of him. Uh, uh, you know, and I, this is, it's a very straightforward film, but I think there are ways in which the characters keep surprising you in this. Phoenix's character has these bursts of anger. Uh, he's got a kind of good heart, but he's not Im- immune to the allure of this macho bonding that his cohorts are doing. And, and the movie allows that that these kind of like the way they're swearing loyalty to one another is a form of self-protection, right? You're about to go off and potentially die with these people. So to attempt to, you know, all get matching tattoos and bond is a way of trying to affirm these connections that you have with guys who are essentially strangers. Um, and, and at the same time, 
Taylor is playing this proto hippie. Uh, but while she's naive, she's not dumb. And she understands exactly what's happening in this night out. Uh, and, you know, Phoenix, I, I think uh, there are times, you know, his career was cut sh- so short. Uh, he's he's a strong screen presence, but he still seems like he's learning, I think, in this movie. But Taylor is so good. Like, she's so open and heartbreaking and uh, uh and i think that there are times in which this movie verges on the a little too on the nose it happens it doesn't just take place in 1963 it take it takes place the 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 night before kennedy gets assassinated um and you know the, the the like as as this time period can sometimes feel a bit like um wearing a costume but that said, uh, I, I think that it is so there is a real presence and immediacy to its characters uh, and to, they, that makes them feel real, not like something out of uh, not like their cultural stand ins. Uh, and it's it's a really kind of nice early 90s indie that I, I was really charmed by. I hadn't gotten to see it until this point and I, I really enjoyed it. So um, it is kind of two types of up all night movies at once, uh, the the up all night bonding movie with the up all night romance. So that is Dogfight, and it is available for rent. It sounds interesting. I haven't seen that one, so that's cool. I'm like I'm glad you picked that one. My uh, second pick uh, is a movie I also had not seen before this week. It, it well, I should say first of all that one of the other movies that comes to mind when you say this this. Not really a genre, but this structure of movie is John Carpenter's Escape from New York. But, I mean, everybody's seen that. We've mentioned it on the podcast before. So I thought instead I would watch, and now I am recommending, its sequel, which I had not seen at least in full all the way through, not on TBS or something. Uh, Escape from L.A., which is from 1996. It is also directed by John Carpenter, like the original, and it also stars Kurt Russell, like the original. As Snake Pliskin, the I don't know this ultimate soldier. He's like, how do you describe? He's a who tough is guy. he? He's, he's a Snake Pliskin, a professional tough guy. Yes, he has an eye patch. Yes. He, he's basically like Clint Eastwood. You know, it's like Clint Eastwood, uh, the man with no name, but he has a name in the future. <laughs> and um, it, the, the two movies are very, very similar in terms of the structure. He's blackmailed by the U.S. government into performing this, you know, kind of impossible mission. The blackmail is always that basically they've stuck something inside him that's going to kill him in a certain amount of time. And he has to retrieve whatever MacGuffin they want from this place and bring it back and they'll spare his life, basically. And in the first movie, Escape from New York, it's set in this dark future, I think of like 1997, (laughs) where Manhattan Island has been cut off from the rest of the country and is now like the national prison. Um, It reflected a very different time in New York City. yes, Yes, it did. And property values. Uh, Exactly. And in that case, he had to rescue the president whose, like, plane had crash-landed on Manhattan Island. In the second movie, this massive earthquake has cut off Los Angeles, and a deeply conservative, racist president with a bad comb-over who has his own private black-clad police force that operate outside the law and answer only to him – uh, he uses it as a place to deport all the undesirable races and religions mm. from America. So, you know, the movie has absolutely no modern relevance whatsoever. <laughs> you can just, you know, it's just pure escapism. Um, yeah, but that is one of the things that I actually like about Escape from New York is that its ludicrous vision of this dystopia is not completely 
ludicrous, or at least it has these sort of refractions or echoes of a reality we recognize in it, which I think in some ways um, is better than Escape from New York. What is not better than Escape from New York is the CGI effects in this movie. Ooh. This movie is made in 1996, so it is... A couple of years into CGI, but it's still at a point where if you don't have the good CGI, you got bad CGI, and this movie had bad CGI. There is this one sequence where Snake, to get into Los Angeles, he takes this high-tech submarine, and it looks – everything about it, when he gets into it, when he's underwater, it looks like a Sega CD cutscene. It is just embarrassing. And then later – Snake Plissken is riding, uh, he's surfing in okay, Los Angeles with Peter Fonda, don't ask, and everything about that scene, it's like a sci-fi original movie. It just looks so horrible, and you can't believe a director as good as John Carpenter made something that looks so bad. I mean, especially, you know, the first Escape from New York, it doesn't look, you know, it's not an expensive movie, but it has sort of like a grubby, practical charm, and it has these amazing matte paintings, and... The, the second movie just doesn't have that same sort of doomed beauty to it. But, um, you know, it, it does have Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken, still fantastic. It has an incredible supporting cast, including Pam Greer, Steve Buscemi, uh, Valeria Galino, Stacey Keach, Bruce Campbell, and Cliff Robertson as the president, who's really, really good. And, you know, it is sort of an inferior version of Escape from New York. But if you love the original... It's a totally watchable sequel, you know, made by the same people. And the one thing it also kind of has is it is sort of tongue-in-cheek in in a way that the original is not. It's a little more – the first one is great. It's very dark. It's very self-serious. There's not as much humor in that one. This one is sort of knowingly cheesy, and there's some running gags that are great. At one point, Snake is forced to play basketball at gunpoint for his life. (laughs) Will he sink five baskets in a row or will he be blown away by the militants? Sort of great. I sort of love that it leans into the sort of silliness of it. And even though the effects are not great, the art design and sort of this ruined Los Angeles is sort of fun. And, you know, there's some definitely some satire, not just political satire in this one, but also just of like celebrity culture, um, plastic surgery and sort of the superficiality of Los Angeles is, is fun as well. So not a great movie. But a fun one and the up all night aspect of it, just like with Escape from New York, you just have this great sense of suspense because it's like, is he going to get in and out in time to get the antidote for the whatever MacGuffin (laughs) virus they've injected into his bloodstream? It's still fun. The effect's not great, but uh, it's it's, it's a good – it's a good time, no pun intended. Um, That one you can rent or it is currently also available on Stars. Escape from L.A. We've sent in drones and teams of people, but nothing comes back. But something has. You're a biologist. You served in the military. If I knew what happened, I could save his life. The boundary's getting bigger, it's expanding. We're talking cities, states. You need to know what's inside. So do I. Okay, very briefly, which ends up always not being brief, but like 15 minutes. Let's talk about some new movies in theaters, starting with Annihilation. This is the new film from Alex Garland, who previously was a screenwriter for a long time, wrote a lot of great movies, but then transitioned to directing his last movie, Ex Machina, I thought was fabulous. And this is another sci-fi movie, more horror 
has a lot of horror in there. It's based on a, a very popular best-selling book, although from what I gather, I haven't read the book, but it sounds very different in some of the particulars, sort of takes the same idea, the same concept, and, and changes it significantly. You have Natalie Portman as this biologist. Her husband, Oscar Isaac, is a soldier. He's gone into this mysterious Area X he has returned, but he's very ill, and so she is determined to save him by going into this same mysterious area, figure out what happened to him, find a cure, and retrieve it with this sort of all-female group of scientists and paramedics, and they're the explorers, and they encounter very disturbing things. And uh, Allison, what did you think of Annihilation? I liked it. I know I did not like it as much as you did, because you mm, love this movie. I, I did love but this movie. I, I, I really appreciated it. Uh, you know, it's, it's this stalker. Have, have you, have this, you read the book? I have, I've read the start of the book. So I have a sense of at least how the, how it's written, Okay, you know, but I did not, no, I did not spend the movie comparing it to the book in my head. Okay. Cause uh, some yes. people I've talked some to people said that gets in the way. I think it's for a lot of people. It does. Yeah. I haven't read the book, so I had nothing to compare it to. So I was just sort of yeah. taken. No, with it. I had not. I, I do think it's, it's beautiful. And I think I really appreciated the weird body horrorness and organic horror of it. Yeah. These like incredibly disturbing, but beautiful visuals that it, it introduces as things get stranger and stranger. Um, but it was a little, it felt a little removed for me emotionally, especially given that the whole movie is about these very human things ultimately thematically including mm -hmm. a marriage including depression including uh why sometimes you just feel this urge to self-destruct and uh yeah you know i think that um in some ways it made me one of the most interesting things about it for me was just the contrast it provides with where sci-fi has been going recently. Mm -hmm. Mainstream sci-fi is so much about something like Westworld, where it's like, solve this puzzle. Everything has meaning. Right. Fan theories. Right. Free freeze frames. Yes. And this movie is like... F that. Yes. It has like Benedict Wong almost as a bad fan inside the movie mm. being like... Tell me what happened. That's a great. It was this. It was this, and kind of like, uh, yeah. and like Natalie Portman's like, no, I don't know. It doesn't matter. I love that. I love that interpretation. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, totally. I know. And some people have complained that, like, oh, they're explaining everything. Those those framing sequences. These framing sequences where Natalie Portman, the very first scene, we see that she's the supposedly the only one who's returned, and she's being interrogated um, by Benedict Wan, trying to figure out how did she get back, what happened in there, and all this stuff. And some people I've spoken to who don't like the movie that much are like, they explain everything. And I'm like, but listen to what they're saying. It's like a lot of non-answers and non-explanations. Non and the end of the movie is so bizarre and weird. And they don't explain what you're seeing. And I right. loved all like, that. Like, there's a part where at, towards the, like, the last time you see Benedict Wong's character, he's like, so it was this and this and this. Yeah. And you see no indication that that's necessarily true. Right. He is just being like, here's my reading. He needs the answer. <laughs> right. He needs to answer. believe yes. that he has an answer when the movie he is, like, is much more no like there are no yeah. answers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I did like the movie a little more than you did. I just thought I just I got so totally swept up in it. And that's it, it's at times like a gorgeous movie. Yeah. And at times, an incredibly disturbing movie visually. And, and these they encounter these creatures that are so unlike the like it, you know the generic creatures we see in so many movies these days that everybody looks like the alien from aliens or, or like the orc or the, the orc monsters yeah thing. they're just yeah. so generic they just seem like they came off an assembly line of previs 
And these creatures are so different and weird and, and disconcerting and nightmarish. And I was just so totally both like I couldn't take my eyes off the screen and also couldn't look at the screen. And, and the ending, what she encounters, what Natalie Portman's character encounters at the end is like this fascinating like sequence of events that, again, they, they don't like explain – but they also show you this long stretch of stuff that you are in, you're invited to sort of like guess what it is without them really saying what you're seeing. And just I, some of the imagery uh, and scenes in this movie I'll just never forget. I'm, I know already. And like the night after I saw it, I couldn't sleep. It, I kept me up all night with these weird kind of – I kept waking up, like jumping awake from a mm. – from a yeah, it really it, – like, Yeah, it's it hit really – It hit me in a really too. deep level. So I hadn't thought about it this way, but someone pointed out like this is a really bad movie if you're a, if you're a hypochondriac or a germaphobe. And I hadn't thought about it that way. But yes, yes, it is. It has that sort of like the world is coming to destroy you or turn you into something horrible or right. you're going to be infected by something you can't see or stop or well, yeah, it preys it is, on all those ideas. And a lot of this idea of like, how do you how do you feel about your sense of self or your literal body dissolving and changing yes. and becoming not what you, you used to know or going out of your control? Yes. Yeah. It hits all those. It pushes all those buttons for me. And I think. You know, Alex Garland, uh, just I think he's a really good director. And in addition to being a good writer, like the the music choices, the sound design of this movie is so upsetting and weird and disconcerting. These like like these like electronic noises and screeches and uh, it's good. And one Crosby, Stills and, and Nash song. And one random Crosby, Stills and Nash <laughs> song. That's really awesome, too. Yeah. It's um, a it's a thumbs yeah. up a big, big say, thumbs up for like, me. Like I will say, I, I do think it is worth seeing in a theater uh, yes. if you can. And yes. this was another one where, like a little bit like Cloverfield Paradox, the rights were sold off in a lot of the rest of the world to yeah. Netflix. So, the same studio, right? Is Paramount? Yes, it's Paramount. They, uh, they did not believe they had a hit on their hands, which they don't. They don't. It's they don't. Not going it's to a make weird audiences movie. happy. Yeah, no. but it's it's if you like something like Stalker, which is like. A clear like Tarkovsky's stock sure. is like a clear huge influence on this. Then this is a movie for you, definitely. Very briefly, the one movie that I've seen that's coming out next week is uh, Red Sparrow. That's the Francis Lawrence Jennifer Lawrence movie. She plays a uh, Russian spy. She's a ballerina who's sort of forced against her will to uh, become a spy. Also based on a novel. Now that I think about it, uh, I guess I haven't read that book either, but. Much more conventional. I didn't dislike it. It's okay. It's not bad. Um, it is what it is. It's like a movie version of like an airplane novel of, um, about a uh, a Russian spy. Sort of a modern update of like a notorious kind of a thing where she she has a relationship with an American spy, Joel Edgerton. So you have an Australian playing an American, an American playing Russian. The accents are wonderful, <laughs> and um, you know it's it's the the sort of thing where you don't know. Do they really like each other? Are they just using each other for their access to the secrets the, that are all important? And there's a couple of um, pretty intense scenes. There's one really intense scene that's sort of like a, a knife fight scene that I think is, is is pretty well done and very sort of intense and disturbing. And, uh, you know, Jennifer Lawrence, I think, is a wonderful actor. Joel Edgerton is a good actor, too, actually. They're pretty good together. And you know it's 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 really long. It's it, Francis Lawrence. I don't think is a is a fabulous filmmaker. He's fine. He's like in baseball or in sports. There's like the idea of like the replacement level uh, player. Like, is this how much better than your average replacement level person is this shortstop or 
second baseman. Francis Lawrence is the replacement level director. It's okay. like he's like the average. Okay. Yeah, and then you would say Alex Garland is like a ten times re- above the replacement Which, level. Fair enough. So, so I have not seen this movie. Yeah. The one thing that I think people seem to be seeing as interesting in it is okay. that it is almost an accidental black widow origin story oh it totally is like is black it? widow in some ways yes. yeah well there's a recent storyline in marvel um where someone wrote a book that was sort of like the origin story of black widow and I, it, you know you see some of it in some of the movies i guess this idea of like the it's not the red room because that's something else yeah from 50 shades but uh, it's like there's this like room where they where these like young women are trained to become like super spies and yes it's very similar to how this um Jennifer Lawrence character is against her will kind of molded into this weapon to be used against Russia's enemies. And there's sort of it's it's sort of weird because there's like sort of this kind of feminist female empowerment thing where she's smarter than everyone else and she's turning the tables on people and using her sexuality as a weapon against these men who want to control her. But on the other hand, there's also a lot of sexual violence in sure. the movie against her and so it's like are you, the gaze I, is not entirely clear. <laughs> oh, it's for, it's less than unclear. Yeah, it's okay. very clearly male gazey. Yes. Yeah, so it's sure. sort of. I think it's kind of muddled there. I think that a better movie would have would have had a clearer sense of itself in that way. But it's not terrible. You know, it's uh, it's it's uh, prof- it's professionally made. There you Good go. Actors. On the poster. Yeah. Professionally, professionally made! made! Exclamation point. There you go. Um. In fact, I think I they pulled a quote from. From my review and put it on the poster because I said there was like a one decently shocking twist uh, in the movie at the end and they just put shocking on the on the trailer yes. or the poster. Somebody told me they saw my name on it. Oh, there you go. So that's Red Sparrow. Go see Annihilation. Then see Red Sparrow maybe later on television or something. On an airplane. On an airplane. It's an airplane movie. Totally. All right. Let's get to Behind the Eight Ball. That's where we wrap up the show by giving you some new releases on streaming. We share some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one film that we've each chosen blindly by number from each other's my lists on Netflix. Allison, do you want to go first this yeah, time? All right. First. All right. Let's start with three new releases on streaming. Okay. First up, speaking of movies in which a woman is molded into a human weapon. Okay. Uh, the Villainous oh. is streaming on Hulu. I love this movie. South Korean action film directed by uh, Jung Byung-gil, who was a stunt person before uh, he moved over into being a director. And you can see it. The camera does some impossible things in this. And there are so many ways in which it kind of hides green screen and has people doing like actual stunts where you can see people's full bodies and it's wild it does impossible things and um kim okbin is the main character who's a woman from, goes from being a a kind of like enforcer for a gang like a killer for a gang to being a killer for the government and they're basically the same things uh and she's kind of unwilling in both but does it uh out of loyalty to someone in particular and then fabulously, because half of this movie is like like just rich melodrama, uh, like a very melodramatic version of Nikita. Uh, she goes undercover as a theater actress, just, you know, to blend in seamlessly. <laughs> and I adored it so much. Um, it's hyper-violent, but it's also incredibly, like, soapy. Uh, it's a really interesting movie. The Villainous, it's on Hulu. New to Amazon is Most Beautiful Island. This is a 2017 horror movie. It was written and directed and stars Ana Asensio, who is this uh, Spanish actress. And she plays – it's it's a horror movie, but it's also 
uh, kind of a portrait of living as an undocumented immigrant in New York City in this case. So it's this woman who's kind of stringing together all of these jobs including this mysterious job she gets that takes up the second half of the movie. The first half, I will say, is a little weaker, certainly weaker. But the second half is really great, like uh, just very thrilling and scary and unsettling. So that is on Amazon, Most Beautiful Island. And finally, new to Netflix is The Breadwinner, Oscar-nominated animated film, Nora, Nora Twomey. And it's uh, about a girl in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan who dresses as a boy to go to work to support her family after her father is unjustly arrested. So uh, I think Angelina Jolie stepped on as executive producer of this one to give it a boost. So it's probably going to get crushed at the Oscars. Oh, yeah. But it's there and now it's on Netflix so you can see it. Okay. How about two listener recommendations? First up, got one from Nat in Chicago that I was really grateful to hear. He writes, after trying and failing to find this film in any format, I was pleasantly surprised to find that Andre uh, Zalowski's 1981 Possession oh, yes, is oh. on movie for $2.99. What? I know. I did not know this either. And I was like, I immediately went and was like, yeah. So, yes. Possession is a film, Nat writes, with an impressive disregard for the viewer's expectations. It is the tale of the gradual end of a relationship, which is basically already over at the beginning of the movie. It's psychological horror and supernatural horror and body horror and occasionally a meet-cute romance. With the camera swooping and swirling around them, Sam Neill chews the scenery with ferocious glee while Isabella Johnny is simply arresting, mirroring the movie's central relationship. Johnny's on-screen presence demands that we attempt to relate to her character, even as her disordered behavior demonstrates that this is impossible. Thank you for that, Nat. And I'm sure a lot of people will be grateful to hear that. I am grateful to hear that. And now, I didn't read the articles, but correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't isn't movie going to be? Is it free for film students? Is that? I think yes. That if you are a film student, you can get a free something like that. And teachers, perhaps, maybe. Look so this maybe. up. I, yeah, I look should it be up. More, I think they they've been yeah. offering them to. Yes, this was a new story in the last week or so. Google this if if one of those uh, applies to uh, you. applies to you. Take a look because I'm pretty sure they're. I don't think it started yet. But that's something that's, I think, coming up. So that is something to take advantage of if you are a, a film student. Yeah, and that that title is like has not been easy to see. No, so, no, uh, that is a really. I may, I might have to sign up for a movie myself. Yeah, but this I think week. that you, I mean, it's not a subscription title. It's a two ninety nine rental oh. title. Oh, so you can, I think, maybe even see it without having to. Okay. Rent. So check that out. Um, and then I've got a second recommendation from Gil in Toronto, who writes. Uh, I and actually recommend something that a few people have weighed in to recommend. Gil writes, I have a listener recommendation for you. Uh, the German Netflix series Dark. The show centers on the small town of uh, Winden as strange things have started to happen. Children are disappearing. Animals are dying. And the ominous nuclear pl- power plant nearby seems to have something to do with it. I won't spoil too much since part of the appeal of the show is unraveling the mystery at its core, but I'll give you the elevator pitch that I deliver when I recommend the show to my friends. Dark starts off as a kind of cross between Stranger Things and Twin Peaks, then evolves into Lost meets Back to the Future. (laughs) The atmosphere, cinematography, and writing are all great, and it's well worth checking out. But I have two warnings. 
watch it subtitled because the dubbing is terrible. Okay. Yes, dubbing is almost always terrible. Mm -hmm. And beware of the last few moments of the finale. They take a turn that some viewers might not enjoy. Mm. 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 All right. Well, thank you for that. A few people have have shouted that out. So I have added it to my my list. Okay. Before we move on, I just did some research because I'm a dedicated person. Yes. Movie.com slash film student. That's the website. All you need to put in is your name, your university email, and your graduation date. That's it. So if you're a film student right now, you might want to check that out. Even if you don't want to watch uh, Possession, you can you could sign up for a free account anyway. And there is a teacher sign up as well, movie.com slash film teacher. So check that out. Uh, okay. How about one film chosen by my list? You gave me number six. Number six is Hap and Leonard season two. Uh, Hap and Leonard is the kind of half mystery series, half buddy drama uh, based on the novels by Joe R. Lansdale um, and created by Nick Dimitri and Jim Mickle, who did Cold in July. Uh, but it stars James Purifoy and uh, Michael Kenneth Williams as these two characters who, one of whom... Uh, refused to serve in the military or in the Vietnam war and went to prison for it. And the other one did go to war and they solve crimes, but it takes them full short season to do it. And I've actually seen most of the second season already Just, uh, was excited to see that it popped up here so I can finish it. But I thought the second season was actually even better than the first. The first was still kind of trying to figure out its timing. And the second season uh, has like a kind of stronger, stronger focus and cohesion. So uh, it's some, some good t- easy going to, uh, TV that goes down very easy uh, and has two great leads. So happen Leonard my number six on my my list matt yes are you ready yes all right well why don't you give me three new releases okay first up on netflix is the joel McHale show with joel McHale. approximately 800 years ago when my wife and i canceled cable <laughs> we realized at that time you know if we save the money if we have netflix and hulu and amazon we could watch just about all of our favorite shows if we were patient except for The Soup, E's weekly roundup of the dumbest stuff on TV hosted by a – before he starred on Community, Joel McHale. Well, now, 800 years later and several years after The Soup was canceled, Joel McHale has a new show on Netflix and it is basically The Soup. Uh, lots of clips, lots of jokes. The only real difference is because Netflix is so international focused, it has a lot of – Clips from shows from around the world, which is cool. I like seeing that stuff as well. It's like, yeah, they talk about The Bachelor, but they also show you weird stuff from South Korea and all over the world. It's 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 cool. So far, there was just one episode. Uh, as I guess maybe the second one came out today. I haven't watched it yet. First episode was good, not amazing, but you know, it's the first episode, and it's not a binge show. It's a uh, it, because it's topical. It comes out every Sunday, so I'm not sure how many episodes there's going to be this season, but I am glad to have. A Joel McHale clip show back in my life. Uh, The Joel McHale show with Joel McHale on Netflix. Next up, also on Netflix, is Casino, the 1995 film about the rise of several gangsters in the Las Vegas underworld from Martin Scorsese. Uh, seen in its day kind of as Goodfellas Redux Light. And I admit, when I saw it the first time, I wasn't that impressed, but. I don't know. There's something about this movie. Every time I watch it, it grows on me to the point where now I think it's kind of underrated Scorsese and one of the all-time great opening scenes of any movie and all-time great opening scene like cliffhangers where smash cut to a a credit sequence. Uh, 
I don't think it's ever been topped, frankly. It's amazing. So that is Casino, and that is also uh, on Netflix. Finally, on Amazon Prime is Valerian, Luc Besson's financially disastrous sci-fi epic based on a French comic series starring Dane DeHaan and Cara Delevingne. I actually missed this one in theaters. Uh, have you seen it, oh, Allison? Yeah, I saw it. Did you love it or hate it? I There's a lot to like in it. It does okay. not feel like up to uh, maybe prime Basson standards, mm-hmm. but it's just visually incredible and weird and has that really Euro lilt to it that, mm-hmm. you know, feels very different. So yeah. it seemed like it was it had some very divergent opinions on it. Some people really enjoyed it. Some people absolutely hated it, but I, I like that in a sci-fi movie. I think that's a good sign. Like to me, that's like annihilation. If, if everyone loved annihilation, I might like it less to me. Frankly, the more that people are like, I didn't get it. I thought it was stupid. Like that just makes me like it more. If you're, if you're on the wavelength of a sci-fi movie that everyone loves it, you're too tame go further go weirder that's what i say so that's uh, valerian will be available on amazon prime all right give me two listener recommendations all right our first comes from olivier he writes i would like to recommend uh well there's a french title but it's man on the train by patrice leconte now streaming on amazon prime it stars jean roquefort from lost in la mancha and Johnny Halliday, a singer who also played in a few movies like Vengeance. Uh, two huge stars in France who died recently. Man on the Train is a really French movie with very little action, a melancholic atmosphere, sad and funny at the same time with two great characters. Thank you for the great show. So that was Man on the Train on Amazon Prime from Olivier. Thank you. And we got an email from Mark in Seoul, South Korea, who writes, longtime listener with a recommendation from Filmstruck, which I just joined. There are many great films there, of course, but a somewhat under-the-radar film I finally caught up with is Mon Oncle de... Mon Oncle d'Amérique. Thank you. The 1980 film from Alain René, more well-known for his earlier work like Last Year at Marion Bad, Hiroshima Mon Amour, and Night in Fog. Not only is it a very entertaining film, but it is quite ahead of its time in its mixture of fiction and nonfiction. And still quite unique in its combination of scientific research and narrative. The movie features nonfiction material detailing the work of a, a philosopher and psychologist... I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Why did you give me all these names that I can't pronounce this time? Did you do this on purpose, Allison? You know Allison what? picks like the after listener I was, After I was reading the Hungarian names from last time. Revenge yeah, is a can, dish you can best served this. French, can, I guess. Give, give it a try. Henri Labarite. Sounded good. That sounds I, I, oh well. Anyway, uh, the film uses the story of three interlocking characters to help illustrate and dramatize his ideas. Each character also has a favorite screen idol. So there are clips from great French stars like Jean Gabin in there as well. The result is a kind of film essay that also works surprisingly well as a drama in its own right. So on Filmstruck, that is, you say the title again, because I can't, you said it good. Mon oncle d'Amérique. Thank you. From Mark in Seoul, South Korea. Thank you for that recommendation, Mark. Okay. Now give me one from your Netflix, my list. You gave me number 11 and right now on my, my, my list. Number 11 is Mind Hunter, the Netflix original series directed, at least the first one was directed by David Fincher. Two episodes. Did you do the first two? Yeah. Okay. I think. In 1977, frustrated FBI hostage negotiator Holden Ford finds an unlikely ally and veteran agent Bill Tench and begins studying a new class of murderer. Um, I started this one. I saved it for my paternity leave. I started it. I watched one episode. I thought it was fine. Good. 
But um, I, I had that and the deuce, and I got way more into the deuce. So I watched all of the deuce, and I didn't continue Mindhunter. Did you watch Mindhunter? I watched all of it. It's yeah. fine. It's funny Funny enough, though, like, the Fincher, he directed the first two episodes and the last two episodes. Okay. And I will say the first two episodes are not by any ma- in any way the strongest. Yeah, I mean, it they takes, look like Zodiac visually, sure. but it didn't really have a lot of snap to no, it No, it to takes me. quite a while for the show to kind of arrive at. I think interesting stuff. It does eventually, but it's a very, in some ways it feels like a prequel for the actual show. Mm. The whole first season feels like a prequel. Yes. Mm. All right. Well, maybe I'll get around to it in 10 to 12 years. (laughs) Uh, Well, it's a good thing. They're definitely not going to make new things in the meantime. Yeah, that's true. Now's a good time to catch up on stuff because they don't add stuff very often. All right, let's get to our listener's choice options for our next episode. And we've had some folks saying, hey, you guys haven't done a TV show in a while. So we're going to do TV next time. We've got three television options for you. Series. Uh, The first series we have here is called The Looming Tower. Executive produced by Dan Futterman, who's the writer of films like Foxcatcher, and Alex Gibney, who you know as a, a documentarian who makes at least eight films a year. I guess he's taking a break from making – he'll only make three documentaries this year because he's busy with this. (laughs) Um, This show will be available on Hulu starting on February 28th. It is based on the nonfiction um, book of the same name about sort of the events leading up to 9-11, the events that allowed 9-11 to happen, um, I guess, from the perspective of like the FBI and the CIA. And has a very good cast, including Tahar Rahim, who's from A Prophet. Uh, Jeff Daniels, Peter Sarsgaard, and Michael Stuhlbarg, all in that show. Uh, have you seen any of it yet, Allison? Not yet. They, okay. I mean, they've sent some out to press, but I haven't watched yet. It's certainly, it seems like Hulu's kind of attempt to have its, after Handmaid's Tale, its second kind of right. prestige Definitely title. seems like their biggest thing since Handmaid's yes. Tale, trying to kind of follow up on the success of that, not just commercially, but critically. And uh, yeah, I mean, it could be great. Well, it's a, it's certainly an intriguing subject. Seems ripe for a uh, a television series. So that's going to be option number one, The Looming Tower. That's going to be available on Hulu starting on February 28th. And I believe on February 28th, three episodes is what is going to first debut on this on there. Yes. And then there's going to be more coming, like each episode after that weekly. Right. They'll roll them out. So hopefully we'll at least be able to talk about the first three. Maybe we'll be able to talk about more than that, depending on how when we record, how they're released, if we can get review copies, if I can watch that much television in, in two weeks. We'll sure, see. You can do it. I have faith in you. Okay, great. So that's option one, The Looming Tower. Okay. Option two is a series that I was really excited about when I got one of those emails from Netflix being like, hey, we have this show because I read the title, The Frankenstein Chronicles. And I looked at the brief description that mentioned detective. And I thought, is this a show in my favorite, in the form of my favorite format of all shows, which is blah, 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 helps detective solve crimes. Is this a show about the Fra- Frankenstein's monster solving crimes in Victorian England? Fire bad, you guilty. Rah! Incredible. No. Sadly, is- that is not the movie. <laughs> Sadly, it is not the case. Uh, not um, the TV show, I should greatly say. disappointed. Yeah. But... but. The result, at least, does sound interesting enough that yes. we wanted to put this up here. Also because uh, it is a, a British period crime drama that was also supposed to be uh, on A&E here in the U.S. And then A&E kind of like stepped away 
you know, everyone for a while was trying to get into the scripted television game. Right. And then every, everyone more recently has been like, maybe this is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe backed away. Too much of this and we're spending a lot of yes. money. Which is how Frankenstein, Chron- Frankenstein Chronicles, Frankenstein, uh, Frank- <laughs> Frankenstein, uh, yes. became a Netflix original in the US. Um, but it does star Sean Bean. And it is, in fact, a kind of like gritty inspired by uh, reimagining of Mary Shelley's novel uh, that becomes about like a serial killer and bodies being sewn together right. and Anna Maxwell Martin as as Mary Shelley. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know. We haven't talked about uh, these. Uh, so many shows on television are actually just crime dramas and we don't tend to talk about them. So maybe this would be a good time to kind of look at that. Or maybe even to look at the career of Sean Bean, you know, someone who shows up and dies so often yes. on television. Uh, doesn't he deserve his own episode? Yes. So that is your second option. The Frankenstein, Cro- Frankenstein Chronicles on Netflix. Starring Sean Bean as Frank, Inspector Frank Steen. I wish. Inspector no. John Marlett. Oh, boo. Yeah, that's not as good. Okay. Option number three. Is a also a television series available now on Netflix called Babylon Berlin, and this one is co-created by Tom Tickfer, a director you may know from such films as Run the Run, mm-hmm. co-directed Cloud Atlas. Mm-hmm. He's done a lot of great stuff. This is a TV show from him. I will read you the plot description: A Soviet freight train's hijacking leads a haunted cop and a poor typist. To uncover a political conspiracy amid the vice and glamour of 1929 Berlin. And you, I think you said, Allison, someone specifically told us to take a look at this show. Uh, it was Peter Vells, one of our listeners. Uh, give me a heads up. So we thought, you're right. You know, we haven't done a lot of TV recently. So let's, yeah, Tom let's, Tickfer. let's do some TV. He's Especially Tom Tickfer is someone who, you know, was such like a kind of... Uh, I, I think like seemed poised to make very Doug Lyman esque in that yes, way. Yes, exactly. He also seemed poised to kind of like make waves into Holly in Hollywood, and then kind of it never really worked out. Yeah, he veered away. Yes. So that I mean that show it's a German show. So that's another interesting aspect of it is how often do we talk about German television? Mm-hmm. I, this, I mean, not a lot. Show. So maybe, not often. Yeah, maybe so, maybe this is uh, an episode where we can talk about also like some German films, which I don't know that we've ever done a, an episode about. Have. I don't know? think we have. So I, I, I don't recognize anyone in the cast, but um, yeah, I mean, we've gotten we've had listeners recommend the show. Tom Tickfer is a is a talented guy. So this could be interesting as well. A period, also, like it's super expensive. Apparently, it yeah. was the one of the priciest, maybe the priciest uh, German drama ever made. So, so what is German prestige? Oh, no, TV it's look actually like? according to Wikipedia, it is the most expensive television drama series not made in English. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, to see like uh, a European you know ventured towards making a prestige drama an expensive prestige drama mm-hmm. i would i would be really interested in seeing yes, that yes so uh that is your third option babylon berlin it is currently available on netflix okay which of these television series should we review on the next episode of film spotting streaming video units 
You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or much easier, enter in the poll that is at the bottom of the page over at filmspottingsvu.com. I'll also post links to that poll and all of our social media feeds. Your vote must be received by Monday, March 5th at noon. We'll announce the winner on Twitter at filmspottingsvu and also over at our Facebook, facebook.com slash filmspottingsvu. And then you'll have all that week to watch the episodes and join us for our conversation on the next uh, installment, which will come out on Tuesday, March 13th. FilmspottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies and television shows we discuss on the show. The Filmspotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.Bandcamp.com. We will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the TV review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And also follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That is where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you, the SVU listeners, and ourselves, mostly Allison, but I get in there too sometimes. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>